What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Untangling Climate Finance. I'm Jay Tipton. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to read a review that was left from a listener on Apple Podcast. This one comes from A. Rodriguez A. He, or she, I'm not really sure, says, It's nice to finally have a podcast that covers topics that are relevant and important. Big fan of the host and the guest so far. A must-listen for anybody who cares about the climate. Hey, thanks for the compliments, A. Rodriguez A. That was a box office review, and I sincerely appreciate it. Now, let's get back to the regularly scheduled program. In this episode, I'll be talking with David Antonelli. For those of you who work inside the carbon market space, David is a household name thanks to his time served as the founding CEO of the American Standard and Registry, Vera. David led Vera for almost 15 years before stepping down earlier this year in May. Under his guidance, the nonprofit grew into the world's largest carbon credit certifier. During his time, Vera established standards that are currently in use by the private sector, governments, and civil society to generate climate finance. Beyond Vera's growth, David has played a key role in advancing the overall voluntary carbon market, which has had one heck of a year, including both ups and downs. On the downside, there have been a handful of articles and reports exposing major problems like overcrediting, human rights issues, revenue sharing, and even calling into question the efficacy of the market in general. At the same time, groups like the Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Market, or the ICVCM, and the Voluntary Carbon Market Integrity Initiative, or VCMI, have been hard at work to fix many of these issues and prepare the VCM for a new and improved future. David and I touch on a lot of this in our chat, and thanks to his experience, he is a vital source of knowledge and expertise. So needless to say, he shares a lot of great insights. But enough from me, let's hear from David. Hi, David. Welcome to Untangling Climate Finance. I appreciate you joining me. How are you doing today? Great. Nice to talk to you, Jay, and thanks for the invitation to be here. Absolutely. So why don't we kick the episode off by, you know, just telling me a little bit about yourself. Well, yeah, well, you know, uh, I mean, most people will know me from being the CEO of Vera for 15 years. Before that, I mean, I've basically been doing work on climate change for about 30 years now, and I've been at it from very different angles. I've been an environmental activist. I've worked under the Cuban Montreal Protocol as a consultant, and I've worked in the private sector. I've worked for governments, uh, and then I've worked for Vera as an NGO, standard setter for many years, and now I'm an independent contractor. You know, I, I, uh, Decided to pass the reins on at Vera to start to other to the team, and now I'm uh, looking forward to seeing what the next chapter is and what else I can contribute with. Perfect. And I always like to hear a little bit of the personal side of the stories. As you said, you've been working in climate change for about 15 years now. What was it that brought you into this space? Yeah, I say it's more like 30 years, but you know, it's actually kind of a interesting. Uh, story. Um, I began. I was a consultant working for ICF Consulting back in the day, and I was recruited to help a, a colleague of mine develop projects that that provided recovery and recycling technology to mobile air conditioning shops around the world. Um, this was under you know, the the ozone treaty. And then part of my job at ICF, a small job, when I actually worked for Craig Ebert, Craig Ebert was my, my, my boss, who's now the CEO and president of the Climate Action Reserve. And one of my jobs was to help developing countries, countries in Latin America in particular, develop their greenhouse gas inventories. And so I was actually born and raised in Mexico for 15 years. 
and speak Spanish slowly and by fully bicultural. Um, and so that was kind of my entry point to climate change. And, you know, very early on, I realized this is a pretty big issue that is not getting the attention that we need. And so I kind of have built my career around it. And I think, you know, one, I mean, speaking from the personal perspective, another thing that's always weighed heavily on my mind is the level of development, um, you know, throughout Latin America, of course, Africa and Asia as well. Um, and so when I studied a graduate degree, I got a degree in environmental policy, but also in international development, which I think is really critical. And I think with climate change and carbon markets, you know, you can see those two blended in a really powerful way. Absolutely. Uh, interesting too, because, um, well, one, I didn't know you were from Mexico or you were born and raised there. That's, that's an interesting mystery that I just discovered, but that was kind of my, my idea into it as well. When I started really paying attention to climate change, of course, I was focused on what was happening in the U S because that's where I'm from, but I was really thinking about, uh, Latin America and Africa. And so we share that same interest and background, I think in terms of really thinking about the problem, but, um, do you still spend time in Mexico? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. My, my mother and son-in-law up there, you know, my brother's children are married to Mexicans. My brother, my brother's wife is Mexican. So yeah, there's, there's wow. plenty of, of contacts and we've got friends all over uh, Mexico, but also we've actually developed a great set of relationships with folks from Colombia and other parts of Latin America. So yeah, no, there's quite a, quite a bit of staying in touch with, with the folks in, in, uh, in Latin America. Que guay, que genial. Claro, claro. <laughs> Muy bien. Well, that's awesome. The next episode, we'll do this in Spanish. Yeah, yeah that's true. In fact, if I would have known that earlier, maybe we could have tried to do this one in Spanish because I'm actually in Madrid. Oh, wow. I've lived in Spain for a few years. So my Spanish level isn't bilingual like yours, but it's not bad. As you said, everybody's going to know you probably from your time in Vera as the CEO there. You'd said you left over the summer. What have you been up to since then? Well, I, I took the summer off. I had a great summer and I took a long vacation with my family. I kind of enjoyed the summer here in Washington, D.C. And, and then I was able to join a really interesting trip organized by President Duque from Colombia in the Amazon, uh, who brought together a bunch of investors and multilateral development banks, philanthropies, NGOs, carbon nerds like me to talk, talk about how we can try to, you know, effectively save the Amazon and, and, and protect that, that ecosystem. That was really interesting. But then I also went backpacking with two good friends of mine out in Wyoming, which was just very wonderful. Uh, so I kind of just wanted to dial back and reflect and think about things. And so you had a great summer and now I'm trying to dip my feet back into, you know, what I want to do when I grow up. Yeah, exactly. You always have time to figure that out. But nothing will uh, clear your mind a little bit like taking long hikes uh, in the wilderness. So that's a, a good, good choice. I'm a bit envious that you're you're out there able to do that, to be honest. And so stepping down from Vera after a very, very long tenure there, uh, I'm sure that was a very big decision for you. And can you go into what prompted you to decide this? Yeah, so it was a long time, you know, as I thought back about my tenure at different companies and places, it had usually been about a five to six year stint. And when I first started the job at Vera, I honestly thought that, again, it was a five, six year job. Remember, the year was 2008, President Obama had just been elected, I was convinced we were going to have captain trading the U.S., Eventually, the Europeans were going to tighten the screws, Australia, China would come along. And I thought that the world would, you know, climate change and greenhouse gases would be regulated throughout the world pretty soon. And I thought that the opportunity to work at Vera, which is then the Voluntary Carbon Standard Association, 
uh, it was a great little opportunity to kind of make a contribution and then, you know, to lights out, close the door and be done with it. But then we got to a point where, you know, five or six years into the job, we find ourselves in quite a bit of a, you know, the doldrums, if you will, where the market was going down and we built something, you know, pretty cool. And I didn't feel like it was the right time to leave because I thought that, you know, this is the, the entire sector was vulnerable and clearly we didn't have cap and trade and we climate change wasn't being regulated around the world and that was the time you know when, when the paris agreement came around i thought oh this is great right so now we're looking at bottom-up solutions instead of a top-down approach which was kind of the, the framework of the kyoto protocol so i thought well this actually could now be really interesting this market could actually grow and sure enough you know before i knew it you know the market was back and there was a lot of activity uh, and it got really, really interesting. Um, and so kind of, you know, in the last year or so, I've been thinking, okay, I've been able to ride this wave. I've been able to make a significant contribution, but it, it is time to let other people take it to the next level. Um, and the team at Vera, I'm, you know, very confident that they'll do a great job and they are doing a good job. So, you know, I felt it was time for me to move on. There's other things. It's a growing market. There's growing opportunities. And I thought that there's probably some other things that I can be doing and contributing to the effort and letting the good folks of Vera run with, with kind of what they're doing already. And the winds of change, you felt them. So uh, our company is very deeply involved in the voluntary carbon market. That's part of why we have this podcast. And so naturally, we're always reading what's going on in the world of climate change, climate finance, and the carbon markets. I would say that the majority of our listeners are also pretty well educated in the carbon market space and are probably likely up to speed on a lot of what's been happening this year. However, I do want to kind of set the set the stage for the audience. So I'll provide a bit of a brief overview of what's been going on in the VCM, which of course you're familiar with all of this. But basically since the start of 2023, there have been numerous scientific reports and articles uh, released stating that the VCM is broken, that most carbon credits on the market are worthless in the sense that they're not actually avoiding or preventing carbon emissions that buyers are greenwashing their activity by purchasing offsets, and essentially that the system is not fit for purpose. Needless to say, it's not been a great year for the VCM, and carbon markets have definitely been taking blow after blow throughout 2023. So as somebody who's been at the center of the VCM for many, many years, I'm curious, what is your take on all of this? Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the you know the million dollar question, right? And I get that asked all the time, and, and my answer is kind of evolving as I think more about it. But I mean, let me just say just the first thing: that scrutiny is good, right? You know, scrutinizing projects and the impacts they're having is good. And I think we actually have, and we may be late to the game here, but there are now a couple of really important initiatives that are out there that are providing, hopefully, will provide a much stronger foundation for the market. And of course, I'm talking about the Integrity Council for Voluntary Carbon Markets, which will you know, essentially look at and set a minimum threshold of performance that credits have to meet. So, you know, one of the one of the limitations or the challenges that we have in the market is that you have different certification programs. So a buyer or anybody, you know, looking at the market from the outside has a hard time understanding, well, how do I know that these are equivalent to really generating an emission reduction? So I think the ICVCM is really, really important um, and will do a job of trying to bring more coherence to the market. Literally. 
And then on the flip side, you've got on the demand side, you've got the VCMI, the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Initiative, which is about the kind of claims that companies are doing. And and the kind of on the claim side, I, I have a, a maybe a, a sharper edge on that because I think it's unfortunate that companies that have been taking climate action have been called out for you know greenwashing. These companies have stepped up and they've done something. So I think we've spent way too much time instilling fear and 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 fear mongering amongst those companies that were actually doing something positive. Now, was it perfect? No. And we now know that companies need to be decarbonizing and we should, you know, make sure that we're encouraging and basically getting companies to decarbonize first and offset their residual emissions. But the truth is that, you know, we we've we're late to the game when I mean, you know, we should have had these systems in place, you know, five years ago. But we didn't. It was a small market. We didn't really appreciate how big it was going to be. But fortunately, we do have these things in place now, and I think that's good. I think the other thing is that this sector is still fairly young. I mean, we're just starting to grapple with how we account for greenhouse gas emissions and and have the emission reductions uh, and the whole baseline issue. So, you know, the idea that we can go back and kind of look back and, and say that something was bad in the past, I think is very dangerous because in the end of the day, we need to be careful that we're not conflating things. So what I mean here is that what you have, which are the the results from projects, are the results that are coming from a set of rules and procedures that have been developed through essentially regulatory grade procedures, right? This these are the rules that greenhouse gas crediting programs have. This is what Bear does, this is what Gold Standard does, this is what the Climate Action Reserve does. And so they gathered expert input. They, you know, do a stakeholder consultation pull together all the results and come up with a set of rules. And that is very different than the outcomes or the results of individual analyses that may reflect individual preferences, but may be tainted by individual biases. So I think that what I see happening now is that we, we're kind of conflating the two. And so there's one study that says, oh, the, you know, it's X number of projects are no good. Well, that study reflects the individual preferences of that particular research group or that particular entity. But it's very different than the process that's followed to arrive at a result and an outcome at a, at a set of numbers or, or greenhouse gas emission reductions or credits that are issued. And I think that by conflating the two or putting them, equating them, we risk losing the process. And when we lose trust in the process, we can throw the whole thing out the window. So I guess, you know, one thing I'd say is that we need to we need to identify or treat the different elements for what they are. We should understand that the outcomes from projects follow a set of procedures that have been developed through a thorough process. And we need to trust that process and we need to trust the outcomes of that process. Now, if there are outcomes that don't make sense to some people, that should be brought into the process so that we can improve it over time. Double entry bookkeeping was around in the days of the Greeks and the Romans, but it wasn't codified until 1494 when an enterprising monk put it on paper. Now, I'm not suggesting we take 1500 years to sort out carbon, but I think it's important that we consider that this is an evolution. It's a critically important part of how we actually develop and survive in this world. So, I think we need to be careful about kind of being too quick to judge. Um, and we, again, we should treat the analyses as useful input. But again, we should go back to the process because I think that's what's going to be able to stand the test of time. 
I appreciate that perspective. I think that that was very clear. And so I guess if we go back to the process, you referenced two groups, ICVCM and VCMI that are now stepping in and really putting their fingerprints on the market as a whole. And so do you think that these groups are on the right path with the work that they're doing? Yes. Yes, I do. And, and, and you know, I was on the, IC, the ICVCM board. I represented the supply side of the market. I was a non-voting member. And I think one of the things that I think was particularly useful, at least from my experience there, so we had good debates and we had good, strong arguments. And what the ICVCM has done in the end of the day is, is again, create a regulatory-like process to assess greenhouse gas programs. And that is really important. Um, I haven't been this close to the VCMI, but I understand that it's kind of followed a very similar process. You know, I may not agree with everything that they come out with, but I trust the process. And I think that's important. Again, back to the point about projects, right? If you and I, you know, if you take all your audience, the people listening on this call, who presumably kind of know about carbon markets, if we each evaluate 10 different projects, I bet you that we will all come up with different answers and different scoring systems for these projects. So again, we have to be able to trust the process that's followed in order to come up with the results and again, use any inputs as inputs to, you know, as information to improve the process. Yeah. And, and you said that a little bit earlier, and I totally agree that discourse in these situations and in most situations can be and should be quite positive if everybody at least have similar goals in mind with what they're doing. There's no problem with having arguments and debating over certain points. But as long as uh, we're moving in the general same direction, uh, that's just inevitable part of the process that ideally will strengthen the result or the product. So I'm with you there. And I think that more of that is not a bad thing as long as it's done in you know the sense of integrity and the sense of creating a, a real tangible end result. Yeah. Sorry. Let, let me just say one thing. I think that you, you, you made a really good point about what are we trying to achieve here? And I think what I find interesting and compelling about this market is that ultimately it's about keeping corporates accountable for their greenhouse gas emissions, right? And I think with that lens, I think we need to be applying it so that we're actually achieving that goal. You know, instead of, for example, being so obsessed about or equating, you know, different outcomes with the with the results that come from a process. So I think that, that it's really important to keep in mind what we're trying to achieve and how we're going about it. Yeah, that's a very fair point. This next question is obviously a very wide ranging. Obviously, we just touched on the two meta groups that are working on the VCM, but what are some other things in your mind that can be done to improve the VCM? Or what are some things that you see that are happening right now that are helping in that besides the ICVCM and VCMI? Yeah, so I mean, a couple of things. I mean, the one thing is I think we have to simplify things. We have created a system that is way too complicated, way too costly takes way too much time and simply won't scale. I mean, the fact that there are hundreds of projects waiting to be certified, I think speaks to the the need and the desire to achieve some impact, but also highlights the fact that we've created a system that doesn't really work. And, and I think in many ways, the system we've created, which is this very lengthy, heavy process that has to create essentially a 100-page PhD level document. Uh, full of fancy justifications that then has to be reviewed by an auditor. And then it has to be reviewed by the greenhouse gas programs because we don't trust the system is incredibly complicated and costly, 
but ultimately disenfranchises in many cases the very communities who we're trying to support, especially when you look at natural climate solutions. So, you know, a community in the Amazon can't prepare a 100-page project description. Um, it's too complicated. So we need to think about how we simplify things. And I think one thing that we also need to consider is, and I guess back to my, my previous point, I think we need to think about what we're trying to achieve. Right now, it all starts and ends with a ton. And this is a legacy from the clean development ecosystem, the CDM, where we needed to find a ton to offset an emission from a corporate from a corporate footprint. And I think that was fine, but I think we we're now starting to see the market in very different terms. And I actually don't believe that that's a very compelling narrative. What motivated me to kind of enter the the carbon markets in particular was that you could link private sector efforts and constructs with environmental action and sustainable development. And so what I found compelling is how you actually deliver this environmental sustainable benefit using the private sector. And ultimately, what where that crystallizes to me is if we can start to transform sectors of the economy. And I think that's how many people are starting to think about carbon. It's not just about finding a ton. It's more about what are we trying to achieve in the macro sense? And I think if we can create a more compelling narrative, which in my mind ought to look something like transforming sectors of the economy, that makes for a different way of how we can actually consider additionality. For example, I'll get into that in a second, but let me give you a, a story of something which I found very sobering. When I was at, at Eco Securities, I ran a joint venture that developed a number of uh, landfill gas projects. And this was called Ecomethane. They had a great offering. We had a lot of projects. And I was speaking to one of my uh, colleagues from Ecomethane the other day. And, and they were the ones, so at EcoSecurities, who developed the carbon side of it. The company, our partner, Biogas, developed, kind of put the pipes in the ground. And I asked my colleague, so how are those projects doing? He said, well, a number of them are mothballed. And this was really sad news. And I was like, mothballed? Yeah, well, yeah, the, carbon, the carbon finance ran out and you nobody's know, paying for it. So we're like, selling the assets and they're not really operational anymore. And that to me was really sad because what did we achieve? Yes. Did we reduce emissions for a while while and 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 allow a company operating under the ETS to, to achieve its target? Yeah. Okay. That was good. But we didn't transform the sector. And so what I think we need to be thinking about for carbon is how do we actually use carbon finance as a transitional tool to transform sectors of the economy? And I think this asks a broader question, right? You need to think about how do you introduce new technologies that have an economic rationale on their own so that they can kind of operate on their own once you give an initial hump, which you can do with carbon finance. But there's some projects like the methane capture ones, which may not have an economic rationale in the long term. And so you need probably need to get governments involved. And so that's where I actually think that we need to rethink the whole concept of additionality. I think the project by project approach doesn't work for the reasons I mentioned before. It's too costly, too cumbersome, too complicated. And we need to create positive list approaches that are set to the appropriate benchmark for the industry or the sector that we're trying to affect. And there's some great research I'm starting to get into. I actually want to do more in terms of thinking about how you actually introduce new practices and new technologies to sectors so that you get them to the tipping point and then you can take the foot off the pedal um, and let it operate on its own. But you're right now with carbon, you know, and I was in the room when we made this decision where we said, well, the market maximum market penetration is 
And that was really because we were scared to death of crediting something that was not additional. Well, if we're really trying to change sectors, we need to have the appropriate number that identifies what the t- proper tipping point is for the particular sector. And so we need some research to be done on that. But if we had positive list approaches that had that across the board, you could then see confidence flowing at scale. You could see it not get stuck in the registration process. And you'd have a bigger impact and a broader mission, which I think would be really important. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I want to digest that a little bit once we hang up this call, because I really I think that that's a, a good macro view of, of looking at it in the pivot itself. Inside of the VCM, there are a few key players. One of the most crucial are the registries. So David, obviously, I couldn't be speaking with a better person uh, when I start to talk about the registries. As you, we know that you're the former head of Vera, which is the world's largest. Almost everybody knows this. So how do you view the, the responsibility and the role of registries in the VCM? Well, you know, super important. And I think that, you know, they, in many ways, are the gatekeepers, you know, and if I reflect on my role at Vera, you know, a lot of people commiserate with me and say, God, it must have been really hard being the, the, the target of all these, all these criticisms on the quality of the credits. But the other side of it is at the same time, you know, we were getting criticism and pressure from developers to kind of approve their projects. So it's a tough job because you're stuck in the middle. And in many ways, going back to the systems and the procedures, one of our board members, Mark Stewart, would joke that the job of Vera and standard setting organizations is to make rules that nobody loves, but everybody can live with. And I think to a certain extent, that's true. It's a hard position because you have to balance out and, and you know, you have to Always make sure that you are trying to be as practical as you can. So used to think that yeah, if 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 our if the rules set out by the registries or the greenhouse gas programs, you know, if the private sector were were cheering them on, then clearly they were too weak. But if the NGOs, uh, the kind of the, the the you know the very green NGOs were cheering, then they were probably impossible to implement. So you have to find a middle ground, and it's a hard place to sit. But it's crucially important because ultimately, again, this process. And results that matter, and you want to see what you know the lens that I brought to it when I was at Farah. Um, and there were m- numerous cases where this happened, right? Where I had, had a decision to make, and it was like either a financial decision or an integrity decision. And I always sided with integrity, and I'm very proud of that. But I think that that's a really important role of this registry. So I think one thing that is missed is that they should not be making profit, and I think that is really important. And so the, the profit motive should not be part of the lens of how they operate, because I think that ends up undercutting quality and perhaps the best decision on that was the renewable energy decision that we made to stop crediting renewable energy in 2019, which is probably the worst quote unquote business decision we'd ever made, but it's the right one for the environment. I'm glad you you went there because you literally just teed us up for the, the next question that I had, which yeah, I'm sure you've heard this question a million times as somebody who's, as you said, sat in the middle. And it is without a doubt, always very difficult to be in the middle of any system, but registries make their earning by issuing credits. So basic arithmetic shows that the more credits equals more money for the registries. And so do you think this uh, this simple fact puts the business at odds with ensuring that credits that do eventually hit the market are of high quality? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, and, and I get it. I think that optically, this is a problem. You know, people see this and say, well, yeah, you're just incentivized to, you know, issue as many credits as you can. Like I said, I do think much of it depends on the leadership uh, and the focus. And one thing I always told my staff is like, look, 
we should look forward to the day when these program when the program isn't needed anymore. But I get it. I, I don't think it's as big of a problem as it's made out to be, but I just do think that's important. And I think that there's some things that can be done to address it. The highest level, is there a better solution? If there were a foundation uh, or someone said, look, I'm going to basically bankroll this you know, forever or you know, for as long as you, we need to, then then that would be great. But you know, foundations, whenever have you ever been through the foundation process, the first thing they ask you is like, okay, so what's what's your process? What's your what's your plan to become independent of us? Right? As always, so foundations. At least I found. I've, I've, to be honest, I've not explored this more recently, but I found that they were always wanting to get to a point where you actually cut the cord. In fact, one of the earliest uh, grants that we got at the VCSA was from a foundation, and that was one of the key questions: like, how are you going to cut the umbilical cord? And we said we're going to charge fees. So it, unless someone was willing to walk in with a big check and say, we'll pay for this forever, great, we can do that. But until then, what I think we can do is we can minimize the impact. So I was talking about additionality before, and I know you said you'd want to go and digest this, but let me just put out one concept here, which I think would be really powerful. Right now, the pro, the, the issue is you know comes to a head when Vera or Gold Standard is being asked to approve a project. And you're asked to assess the justifications that are in this 100-page document, which are all fancy and you know very thought, well thought out. Well, if we change the additionality setup so that it's more of a positive list approach and we identify the sectors that we know could use carbon finance and can be transformed once you reach a tipping point, well, then that reduces the burden on the greenhouse gas programs to actually make that crucial decision. Right. And if we look at it at a macro scale, that then kind of eliminates that big concern that people have. It would also reduce the dependency on auditors, on the VVBs, who also have a conflict of interest, right? Because all of a sudden their role isn't necessarily to check these hundred page documents, but it comes more about looking and making sure that the verification part of it sends up. And that's 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 harder to gain, yeah. right? It, that's data. I mean, this, especially now with all the new innovations related to satellite imagery and and monitors and and uh, you know and sensors, right? You can't really. It's much harder to manipulate, especially if you kind of go to systems like you know the blockchain world, where you have smart contracts that are immediately transacting and making decisions based on data that's feeding into the system. So what I think you can do is, unless again, unless someone comes in and you know writes a big check to the greenhouse gas funding programs. I think you can actually minimize the conflict of interest so that it's not as big of an issue. David, I'm going to have to have you back on for another episode where we can just dive in exclusively to these ideas that you're throwing out because I appreciate this. Yeah. <laughs> this is good food for thought. This is definitely the type of thing that needs to be bounced around a bit. Well, good. I'm glad. I'm glad I'm, I'm provoking some, uh, some ideas and some thinking here. Yeah, you most definitely are. If we circle back to, to the VCM, of course, uh, one of the other key players in the game are the project developers. And I'm sure without a doubt, you read the recent article in The New Yorker about South Pole in the Kariba Red Plus project in Zimbabwe. The article levels responsibility at the feet of the project developers South Pole and Stephen Wenzel uh, in Zimbabwe. But it does also reference the role Vera played in the project. Once more, I ask, what's your take on this, assuming you've read the article? Yes, no, of course. Well, I, you know... I, mean, I can speak only to Vera um, for what our role was, and I think you know going back, 
again, to process and procedure, you know, that's what we did. We followed the procedure that was kind of in the rule book. Now, and that was what we were supposed to do. So we did. Now, could the procedure have been better? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, we are constantly, it's kind of this never ending search for perfection when you're thinking about kind of these procedures and these yeah. projects. So I think we need to be conscious of how we can improve those rules and the, the requirements. And there are lessons learned for sure. If we're going to let this market have an impact on the, on, on climate, I think we need to be conscious of continuous improvement and move on. Because we just, I mean, we could dwell on this forever and spend all of our time. Whereas what I think we need to do is, again, take the lesson, apply it, and improve the system and move on. Yeah, I think about that in my own daily life, right? We create systems for our daily lives, the things we want to accomplish in a day, the, the way we want to live our lives, et cetera. And that is never perfect ever. You know, we're constantly improving as things change. So I'm with you in the sense that it's always good to assess what's happening in the, the current it, but it's good to take that information and hopefully improve going into tomorrow. You can apply this to anything in our lives, I would say, but... Yeah, for sure. So going into tomorrow, there is clearly a lot of change happening in the VCM. As somebody who has been very much in the, the know for a really long time, if you look into your crystal ball, David, what are your predictions for the future? Ah, uh, the crystal ball question, huh? Yeah. Well... I'll tell you this. Let, let me ask also, David, I mean, I, I guess I could just ask, do you still believe that the VCM can play a key role in moving uh, very, very much needed climate finance to where it needs to go, which is essentially everywhere in the world, and help the world reach its net zero goals? So short answer, yes. And I'll give you, you know, one way to answer your question is what am I doing now? So I'm still in the carbon markets and I still passionately believe that they can do a lot of good. I think there's some homework that we need to do to make them better. But yes, I think that carbon markets are a great complementary tool to internal reductions. And I think they're a great tool because they can move finance fast to where it's needed. They're very efficient and they deliver development benefits in, in some ways much better than other models have. I mean, if you think about how many stories have we heard of development projects that fall apart because, you know, the whims of the host country changes. I mean, Carbon has a real potential for, again, going back to my point about additionality and how we should be thinking about the carbon markets, to transform sectors of the economy if we're able to hold corporates accountable, right? So which will then drive a lot of finance to you know pretty cool stuff. And and the truth is that decarbonizing is really hard. Yeah. I mean, even if you limit the scope to companies with SBTs, those companies are going to find soon enough how hard it is to decarbonize especially as we move down the list of options, which will get increasingly more costly and complicated. So like to think of the example of a company that invested in a, in a new boiler 10 years ago. Well, that boiler has 20 years to go. Ideally, should you retire today? Yes. Is, your, is the chief financial officer going to buy that argument? No. But maybe you can actually get that company to commit to retiring that boiler early, maybe five years early, and maybe use offsets in between. That's a good solution for the environment. So I think that carbon markets have a real logic. I think if you think about where we're going, I'd like to come back to the carbon budget, right? The carbon budget is about 50 gigatons. It's kind of what we have left before we hit 1.5 degrees. Um, and that's where you know we see catastrophic stuff happening if you don't consider what's happening already bad enough. I mean, just yesterday, talk about Latin America, I used to spend my, my days when I was a kid a lot of vacations would go to Acapulco. And 
The place has been devastated by Otis, which turned out to be a Hurricane 5 hit, direct hit on Acapulco. Massive, massive destruction of, of property and infrastructure. Fortunately, apparently not that many casualties. But still, this is pretty bad. And we've, so again, back 50 gigatons to emit. We emit, sorry, 500 gigatons. We emit about 60 a year. Mm-hmm. So you can do the math, but there's not much time left. No, so sir. as we starting to approach that, it's becoming imperative that we keep emissions from going into the atmosphere. And that's about avoidance, right? We need to make sure that we don't make the problem any worse, which by then, you know, if we do reach the land of, of net zero, which in 2050 means we'll be removing the equivalent number of residual emissions from the atmosphere, that's going to be at six gigatons, roughly yep. uh, 10% of what we emit today. Yep. You know, we've got like a fraction of that in the market today. So we need to build that up over time. So carbon markets are a great way to keep the problem from getting worse. And they're a great way to invest in those long-term technologies and approaches that are going get, get, like, to get us the removals we need. So I think that there's a fundamental logic to the market. I know that we're in a bit of a retrenched mode and kind of taking a lot of hits in the last year, but I think it will come back, especially as people start to realize how difficult this is and how important it is that we t- tackle the problem. Do you see the eventual possibility of the merging between the VCM and the Article 6 carbon market, which is maybe two, three years away? And we don't have to set that up because I think most of our listeners are familiar with what the Article 6 carbon market is. And I've actually had conversations in the past, but this is kind of a thing that we talk about a lot inside of Gordian Knot is like, how are these two going to merge? And so what's your take on maybe a potential merger of them? Or do you think that the two markets will remain separate and function independently? So I actually think the markets have already merged and people have this think that, you know, at some point, you know, we're all going to look up in the sky and there's going to be this big band that says, oh, by the way, the monetary market and the articles and the compliance markets have now merged and, and now we're in a different world. It's kind of happened already. I mean, Article 6 already allows under Article 6.2 for countries to use whatever framework they decide. Now, they will probably use one of the existing greenhouse gas programs, but they might choose something else. And it's all voluntary. You don't have to do transactions under Article 6. It just happens that they're blessed by the UN. But again, if you're looking at an Article 6.2 transaction, that's blessed by the country. So I actually think that this this separation between you know voluntary and compliance markets is doesn't really make much sense. And I actually want to go back to a comment my wife told me the other day. You know, it was the summer and we were talking and and, and I was explaining, you know, the voluntary market and the compliance markets. And she looks at me with a quizzical look and she says, honey, why do you call it the voluntary carbon market? And of course, I went into this fantastic explanation that they're different, that blah, blah, blah. And she just had this quizzical look still on her face. She's like, do you realize that the word voluntary makes it sound like it's underfunded, it's unprofessional, and that it's held together by duct tape and strings? And that was it. And I was like, oh my God, she is absolutely right. Because I thought back, it's like, wait a minute, it's a real market. There are real transactions. There's real money. There's real legal agreements. There's real boots on the ground. Let's stop calling it the voluntary carbon market. It is the carbon market. It may be used for different purposes. Maybe it's a corporate who wants to make some sort of claim on the fact that it's using a credit. Maybe it's a corporate making a claim because it's being told to by its government or it's a government transaction, but they're used for different reasons. But it's kind of all the same market, maybe just used for different reasons. And there will be different pricing, et cetera. But I think 
we need to we need to stop using the word voluntary if I want to give credit, you know, we're kind of to my wife, who I think was a was a brilliant comment. And we just call it the carbon market. And it just happens to be used for different reasons, for different things. That is a extremely practical point of view from your wife. She is practical for sure. And, and way smarter than me. Yeah, I love it. And I hope that the listeners chew on that a little bit and wrap their mind around that because that is very practical. So as we wrap this up, David, and we're, again, we're talking about the future, but now we're shifting away from the market itself and let's focus in on you. What's your idea or goals or aspirations for the future when you look at what's coming ahead for you? Or are you going to stay on the path that you're doing the independent things? Or are you going to go back out and hike for five more months and kind of disconnect. But what's coming down the pipeline for you, David? Well, I wish I could go and hike for five more months. I probably don't have the, the financial wherewithal to do that, um, unfortunately. So I, I do have to pay the bills. But you know, for me, I think I'm looking at different options for what I can do here at a high level. One of the things, I mean, I, you, I mentioned the work on additionality. I'm actually trying to find some funding to get that going because what I'd like to do with that one is actually work with a number of universities to do some proper research and understand this and look at what behavioral economics has to tell us, what development economics has to tell us, what business economics has to tell us about how we actually can transform sectors of the economy. So hopefully that that materializes into something. But you know, there's a couple of things here and there, but kind of at the highest level, I say that what I think we need to do is we need to democratize carbon markets. We need to make them more accessible. And we need to take them out of our ivory tower. I mean, how much time and effort have we spent debating the minutiae of the projects that are out there? And again, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing because it's it's about scrutiny and making sure that the, the process and the rules and the systems work. But in order to make this work at scale, we need to make sure that we make this a practical solution that allows us to to ensure the green transition, which is ultimately what we're, what we're all trying to achieve. Absolutely. And I know this is a, a pivotal moment for you. And so, of course, I wish you all the best in the next steps. And, and I have faith that, of course, you'll you'll figure it out. We need you in the fight. We need everybody in the fight. So thank you. The more skilled, knowledgeable people, the merrier. Is what I always believe in. But okay, David, so we always like to close out the episode in the same fashion, which is by leaning into stoicism. I'm not sure if you are familiar with Stoicism, I'm sure you are, but the once great Stoic philosopher Epictetus said, what concerns me is not the way things are, but the way people think things are. And so I like to apply this to climate change and climate finance. And I want to ask, what do you think is one thing that must be done to change the way people think about climate change and think about climate finance? Yeah, it's a great quote. You know, I think we need to explain and inform and educate people that the carbon markets, I mean, I would say carbon finance, I think, you know, climate finance is a bit broad, but I'd say carbon finance is a tool that we can use positively to make an impact on this problem. Right now, people think that these markets are are dodgy, that it's full of greenwashing, et cetera. And I think we really need to try to change that mindset. And that's a number of things. That's a, that's a lot of homework, right? That's about in my mind, instituting change, such as you do through the ICBCM and the BCMI. It's about changing the narratives and telling a positive story about what we do. But I think it also has to do with kind of changing the rules of the game and, and what we're trying to achieve, which goes back to my point about additionality and, and you know, bringing in new tools like the remote sensing, the, set, the sensors, all that, all that 
digital MRV, I think is going to be very useful because it's going to make the data and the outcomes a lot more transparent. And therefore, that will bring a lot more trust to the market. So if we can do that, I think we'll, we'll be in a position to really see this market grow to what it can do. I know that's not an easy question to answer, but I think you did a A-plus job. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> it's, it's a curveball, I like to think, but uh, you did great. And so that's it for us, David. I really appreciate you joining me today. And I, without a doubt, know that some of the, the ideas that you floated hopefully will get the wheels turning in the heads of some of the listeners. And so I, I appreciate you contributing that as well. So thanks again. Uh, it's been a pleasure and I hope you had some fun. Yeah, no, thank you. It was a great, great interview. Thank you, Jay. A pleasure to be here. Thanks. And that wraps up another episode. In the time that David and I recorded this conversation, he has been quite busy. In November, he contributed an article to Quantum Commodity Intelligence, sharing his insights on enhancing the incorporation of the existing VCM into the Paris Agreement to combat climate change and facilitate increased resource transfers from the global north to the global south. Additionally, he crafted and shared a visual on LinkedIn, emphasizing the significance of the VCM and steering the world away from depleting the remaining global carbon budget. Links to both of those are in the show notes. I'll be back again in January with Dr. Lambert Schneider, the Research Coordinator for International Climate Policy at the OCO Institute in Germany. Having served as a former executive board member of the Clean Development Mechanism, Dr. Schneider has played a vital role in carbon market negotiations and development for many years. Widely recognized as a leading authority on both voluntary and compliance markets, as well as emissions trading, he has contributed significantly to crucial projects involving the Article 6 carbon markets, market mechanisms, methodology development, and various other aspects of the field. Dr. Schneider and I cover a lot of interesting topics related to global carbon markets during our combo, so you do not want to miss out. And now, time for a little housekeeping. Please make sure to subscribe and leave a review for us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If you listen on Spotify, hit the little bell so you get reminders when new episodes release. In addition to Untangling Climate Finance, we record weekly audio versions of our newsletter, Sliced, so there is always a steady stream of new content and thought pieces coming from our channel and team. And if you leave a review, I'll read it at the top of an episode, just like I did this time. And as always, if you want to connect, you can shoot me an email at jtipton at gordiannotstrategies.com. A link to my email address is in the show notes. Thanks, thanks, thanks to everyone for tuning in. I sincerely appreciate you listening and have a happy, happy holidays. This podcast is produced by Gordian Knot Strategies.